0: Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from howstuffworks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen and
1: I'm Caroline.
0: And today we are tackling one of our most requested topics,
1: mansplaining. Yeah, actually can well. I well, can I can I just explain something?
0: Yeah, uh, okay.
1: I mean, you might not be aware of this. Probably not. I am a woman. Um, but, uh, you know, men have always explained things to women as if they don't understand them. Uh, but it wasn't until recently, actually, that we even got the term mansplaining. How's that for condescending? Was that good? That is very good. And,
0: I, and that also um, hits on the sweeping generalizations that can sometimes come up with <laughs> mansplaining to yes. say that men have always
1: condescended
0: yes. No, yes. to women uh, as if it is just a one-way street.
1: Exactly. And so, very good point. Thank you for saying that. Actually, just kidding. Um, I'm done with that. Um, I think it is important to note at the top of the podcast right away That at the root of mansplaining, what is called mansplaining, is condescension. And that is in no way limited to men. It is in no way limited to a conversation between a man and a woman. I, If you look at the way we talk about what we refer to as mansplaining, which is basically – uh, condescendingly explaining something to someone else as if you understand it better when in reality the other person either understands it just fine or actually knows more than you do. Um, I have done that. I have done that to my boyfriend. Uh, about what? What have you, uh, explained um, to him? Well, I'm trying to think. Um, politics. Um, and he's mansplained. Political things right back to me. So we have mansplained at each other. Uh, and by that, I mean, we have just issued statements as if they are completely true and we know so much. And the other one has been like, uh, are you sure? <laughs> are you sure? Or come back and said, well, actually,
0: and well, actually, uh, that definition is missing one key ingredient too of overconfidence. Yes. Arrogance. Arrogance. Yes. You have some hubris plus some condescension, mix it all together. And you have some splaining to do like <laughs> Lucy did. Y'all, that's an I love Lucy joke uh, for anyone who ever ever watches Nick at night. Huh? Um, Caroline, that reminds me, though, of when I Beyonce splained uh, to my dear husband when he was my fiance. Not that that's relevant at all. Um, and I only realized it once I saw a look of bewilderment coming across his face as I had been just monologuing for you know a solid who knows how long because I can really monologue about Beyonce for quite a while like I'm starting to do right now. Uh, and he he interjected and um and let me know that hey hey you don't have to you don't have to bass playing to me boo. Then <laughs> I was like yes let's do get married. <laughs> Um, But before we go any further, can we share one of my favorite examples of mansplaining that has happened on the Stuff Mom Never Told You Facebook page? Oh, please. So as I was telling Caroline yesterday when we were just chatting about
1: this topic, I try to use – Mansplain sparingly. Yeah. I mean, you don't want to be dismissive when an actual conversation's happening. Not every instance of a man talking to a woman is mansplaining.
0: Yeah. And, and there are other reasons that, uh, I uh, try to use it sparingly that we'll get into more later in the podcast. Um, but, but this comment that popped up on our Facebook page was such a perfect, perfectly imperfect example of mansplaining that I straight up screenshotted it and put this guy on blast because, you know what, sometimes there is a utility to holding people accountable to what they say in public forums, like Facebook. Uh, so if you don't like things that you say with your name attached to them uh, then being seen by other people, maybe you don't say it. So uh, this was in response to... An article that we posted about the author Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie just casually saying in an interview that she had – opted to not have a quote-unquote public pregnancy. You know, she's a public figure at this point, and she uh, really didn't let anyone know that she was pregnant because she, in the way she put it, didn't want to have to perform pregnancy for other people.
1: Yeah, which is something that I feel like is very understandable and should be very understandable for our fabulous Minty listeners. Oh, yeah. Well,
0: it started like a huge debate in the comment section of women uh who had been pregnant and some who obviously had not like you and I um coming at it from both sides and it was uh, a really rich discussion until until a fellow named Adam I will not reveal your last name in this forum Adam if you're listening I would be surprised if you are uh but then Adam chimes in and uh says, and, and when he says another person, what I'm about to read, he's referring to Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie. So he says, <clears throat> oh good. Another person saying, look at me. I'm a victim because I'm going through a normal life process. He's talking about pregnancy and people notice just because people notice or have an opinion about your pregnancy doesn't mean you're performing pregnancy. It means everyone has an opinion on child care and everyone has a vested interest in future generations. So, yes, if someone sees you doing something that could potentially hurt your unborn child, they may say something to you about it. Having things said to you doesn't make you a victim. This world is full of people who will judge you for the decisions you make so you can choose to fear others' opinions or to live unapologetically as yourself and hiding information about yourself doesn't exactly make you seem like you're comfortable in
1: your own skin. Wow. So he just explained to her, presumably, her own decision about how she wanted to handle her own self and her own body during her own pregnancy? And how people who are pregnant
0: should feel about the public intrusion on their bodies that often comes with being pregnant. And you can hear in my voice listeners that I am fired up again because that, that right there is mansplaining. No, no two ways about it because that man has a lot of hubris to come on interject himself into a conversation that was being largely had by people who do have a direct vested interest in this as people who might become pregnant at some point. And uh, keep following me, listeners, because I'm not stopping to say that if you don't have a uterus that your opinion is invalid. But to then go and explain how the world is from your cis white male perspective – uh, and, and just, um, overconfidently just lay out the way that you should live your life and feel about your life. That
1: is where he just
0: drives off the cliff.
1: Yeah. And I mean, I think that it's a perfect example of how, you know, let's take something that has always existed, which is people always injecting themselves into conversations where perhaps they don't have a place to tell others how they should think or feel. But the Internet uh, gives people an incredible forum, an incredible opportunity to do just that and to leave a paper trail of their hubris and arrogance. And also, also, also to
0: refer to someone who (laughs) merely in this case with Chimamanda was speaking to the Financial Times, I believe. It was not an article, like an interview about her pregnancy. It was like an offhand comment that she made. She was super chill about it. To then take that and suddenly label her a victim for having opinions about her own body – and the way she wants to conduct herself in her private life, because she has a very public life as well, is also like, who are you? Like, that is so, so much assuming going on. And I will go ahead and read you my response because I did copy and paste all of this and then share it on Twitter, which all of you enjoyed. <laughs> uh, so I responded to him. Well said, white dude who will never experience what it's like to, A, be a female in a public space, B, be a pregnant person in a public space, and C, be an award-winning author in the public eye who would rather not have her baby bump monitored by the press. You're really the quote-unquote victim here since you have to endure so many women saying things that challenge your worldview. Seek shelter, young man. Nice. Thank you. I was proud of it. Nice. So that's mansplaining. (laughs) Yeah. Right there. That is mansplaining. And obviously, like we said, it can take many forms. Mm -hmm. Um and many people can do the splaining. You and I have to watch ourselves a lot in terms of things like white splaining. Yes. Cis splaining, straight splaining. Um and we have done it. We are guilty of doing all of those things. But we definitely try
1: to be vigilant to to not do that. Yeah, and I think awareness is critical. Awareness, awareness, awareness of how you're speaking, to whom you're speaking, um, what you are speaking about. Because I think that if you are a smart person, male or female, um, you hopefully can acknowledge that maybe you're not an expert and that other people – might very well know more than you, and so I think it's so. I think it's so interesting culturally. I know so many people. Side eye. I know so many people are fed up with all of our man centric portmanteau that are coming into the lexicon: uh, man interrupting, manspreading, mansplaining, bro um But if you can't laugh, you're just gonna cry. That kind of thing. Like it's almost like you've got to come up with a joke about the stupid stuff that you have to endure so often, especially when you are a public figure.
0: Yeah, I mean, there's a reason why all those portmanteaus have caught on, because they are a quick and lighthearted way of identifying something that previously was more of just a feeling.
1: Yeah, and it is like kind of a bat signal to other people to say like, hey, have you – have you felt this? Have you gone through this? And it's such a bright bat signal that mansplaining was literally just an answer on Jeopardy. Although not to be confused with a bright Bart signal, <laughs>
0: in which case, run.
1: Run, yeah. Um So the clue was this 21st century word happens when a male patronizingly tells a female about a topic she already understands. And I think that's hilarious. At first, I saw that on Facebook and I thought it was a joke. But yep. It was really on, uh, it was really on Jeopardy.
0: <laughs> Do you think that maybe that was someone on the Jeopardy staff kind of putting it to, to Alex Trebek? It's Alex Trebek. Yeah, we don't know what Trebek is like behind the scenes. <laughs> uh, well, listeners who have requested this topic are probably wondering when we're going to mention Rebecca Solnit. Oh yeah. Because she is really the godmother of mansplaining, <laughs> can we say? Like, really, she's credited with starting this whole conversation with an essay that then developed into a whole book called Men
1: Explain Things to Me. And if you haven't read it, it's fabulous. Yeah. So in in 2008, her essay uh, called Men Explain Things to Me appeared in the L.A. Times, and it was basically critiquing men's. Arrogance in conversations with women. Hashtag not all men, uh, and the silencing effect that it can have on women. Uh, you know, in basic conversations day to day, but also on a much broader, bigger, global, dangerous scale. And uh, she did not use the term mansplain. That would not emerge, like we said, until some people over on Live Journal combined man and explaining. Um, but she really captured the essence that we've been discussing. So basically what happened, um, as she explains in um, a more recently released, I think it was in 2012 or 2013, uh, a more recently released introduction to that past essay. Uh, she explains that her friend had encouraged her to pursue her idea of a men explain things to me essay because, quote, young women needed to know that being belittled wasn't the result of their own secret failings. It was the boring old gender wars. In other words, you know, you, you can't blame yourself or feel stupid if you are interrupted or explained over or, you know, have someone, a man explaining something to you in a condescending way. It's not your fault. You're not stupid. It's the failing of the person on the other side of the conversation. And since she's a writer, um
0: it also reminded me of conversations that we've had on the podcast, too, about this issue coming up in the literary world where it's not necessarily um, – <laughs> well, perhaps maybe like a, a, a Jonathan Franzen to Jennifer Wiener exchange, but um more broadly – hitting on this idea that, you know, men create serious art and literature, whereas women's work is more trivial and domestic, um, and that guys are ultimately like the arbiters of culture and what is important to know. Um, and, oh, man, like w- what happens in this essay is something that has probably happened to a lot of women, regardless of, like, whatever kind of field you work in or
1: even what age you are. Yeah, so she tells the story of uh, her and her friend being at this party. And she had recently released a book about innovator Edward Moybridge and – this older gentleman at the party was like, hey, 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 I want to talk to you. Like when people leave, like, I, you know, I want to talk to you. And she's like, oh, OK, great. And so um, he asks her, you know, he knows she's a writer. He asks her what she wrote about. She said, well, you know, I just put out this book about this guy. And he was like, oh, well, let me tell you. And he proceeds to tell her about this very, very important other book. About Edward Moybridge that had been released and had she heard about it? Oh, he couldn't believe she hadn't heard about it. It's so important.
0: And keep in mind, he had not read the book. He had just read about the book in the New York Times book review. And also keep in mind, too, she had before this point in the conversation mentioned how she had published, I think it was seven or eight books by
1: now. Yeah, so he was like, oh, you're basically like, oh, little girl, you're a writer. Eight books. And, oh. Yeah, and she was like, actually, yeah, I've written, I've written several, several. Well, books. actually. Well, actually. Um, and, you know, she, she writes in the essay like, oh gosh, you know, I've been so wrapped up in my world, in my book. I've had my head in the sand, so to speak, for so long. It's entirely possible. Someone else did write a book about this obscure Edward Moybridge and I just didn't notice. You know, what are the chances? But still, I guess there's a, there's a slight percentage of a chance that that could have happened. And as the man is droning on and on and explaining to her this book and its subject matter and how important it is, her friend pipes up and says, that's her book. Man keeps talking. That's her book. Man keeps talking. Finally around the third or fourth time, that solnit's friend pipes up and says that's her book the man finally stops and as solnit says goes ashen because his entire worldview for a moment is shaken because wait no this is a very important book about an interesting innovative figure in history well he made himself look like an
0: ass i i I don't know I i i don't know that like suddenly he was like wait, I, my perception of gender is challenged more than like, oh, uh, well,
1: I just made myself look like a dum-dum in front of but, two women. But she said that he kept going on, like that he didn't necessarily stop. So I'm sure it it's both. It's like, oh, wait, do I look stupid? Well, now I need to keep talking. Just dig your heels in. To cover that up. Yeah, which is like such an aspect of the the condescending arrogance of mansplaining. That was like a a time in Queens
0: when I uh, was talking to this very nice fella and I told him about the show Stuff Mom Never Told You that you are listening to right now, dear listeners, uh, saying, you know, like, yeah, I host a feminist podcast and he spent the next 20 minutes explaining feminism to me. No. (laughs) Yeah. And I just sat there just drinking my beer and and not really saying much cuz i just wanted to see how how long he would go and boy did he go was he explaining theory or oh or, everything you know and the importance of intersectionality like say, it, it would have been a good conversation if if, it, if it were a
1: conversation
0: right right um instead of monologuing <laughs> right so w- the way though that Soulnet describes essentially mansplaining in that original essay is really, really important to for us to just directly quote and emphasize. So she wrote, though I hasten to add that the essay makes it clear mansplaining is not a universal flaw of gender, just the intersection between overconfidence and cluelessness where some portion of that gender gets stuck. And it's such a such a good way of putting it, of just like, of gender just kind of like getting stuck in the mix where it's like not, not everyone being horrible human people. Correct. But that element of a certain brand of normative masculinity yes. that mixes together with overconfidence and <laughs>
1: cluelessness that breeds what we call mansplaining. Yeah. And coming from people who are perhaps used to their worldview being the one that is dominant, the one that is heard above all others, the the person who's used to being heard and taken seriously and then feels the need to perhaps talk over other people that he feels maybe don't have a right. To have their voice be the dominant voice.
0: Right. And again, I think like so much of this is subconscious and socialization because yes. that right there reminds me of our conversation recently on failure mm-hmm. and how uh, one study found that women tend to wait until they are 100 percent qualified to apply for a um, – some kind of job promotion, whereas men will go ahead and apply for it when they are 60% qualified because there is there is a bit of gendered overconfidence research has shown.
1: Yes, exactly. And so, you know, I mentioned earlier, I kind of said a big statement and then didn't follow it up with anything, which is that Solnit talks about how uh the concept that we call mansplaining can have a much larger, almost global, dangerous effect. And... The reason that she put that forth is that she says that this apparent presumption that, you know, women don't know what they're talking about when they talk about something and and the inherent assumption that men do silences women. and And this can have real and negative effects on women around the world. She says that it keeps women from speaking up and from being heard when they dare. It crushes young women into silence by indicating the way harassment on the street does that this is not their world. It trains us in self-doubt and self-limitation just as it exercises men's unsupported overconfidence. And what happens, she says, when doubt is sown, either self-doubt in yourself because you've been shouted down so much or others doubting that you are smart enough to carry this conversation or understand what they're talking about, is that your credibility suffers. And there are very real, again, consequences of credibility suffering. I mean, look at every conversation Kristen and I have had about rape culture, you know, not believing survivors of domestic violence or sexual assault, um, of stalking, of – The importance of having credibility in the eyes of the law in order to get a restraining order, you know, the bar is so high for so many people to be able to even get a restraining order uh, or a conviction or to be taken seriously by police. And so Solnit writes, most women fight wars on two fronts, one for whatever the putative topic is and one simply for the right to speak, to have ideas, to be acknowledged, to be in possession of facts and truths, to have value to be a human being.
0: Well, in this conversation and everything that Solnit is writing about is so timely for this 2016 election, because there has been a lot of that in terms of just watching that issue of women's credibility being questioned. Mm -hmm. And while that might seem tangential to this issue of mansplaining, it is all connected. Mm-hmm. And especially in the case of women survivors not being believed, that is something that I've also witnessed. We have seen it on our Facebook page of Stuff Mom Never Told You, of men and women alike coming out to say, oh, she's just making it up. She, they're opportunistic. That's not really assault. Get real. This is the way the world works. And and just dismissing it and just invalidating Other people's experiences and the sense of violation and trauma that they have
1: no clue about. Which is then tied into the issue of reporting, right? Because if a woman's credibility is suffering internally or from external sources, hello, that addresses the whole question of like, well, why are these women just now coming forward? Right. Because in the cases of people like Cosby or Trump – Power in numbers, right? I mean, that's almost the only power a lot of these women who've been silenced have at this point.
0: Yeah. And it is something like you you said earlier, Caroline, This this issue of mansplaining in a lot of different contexts does – tend to spike around elections because, hello, (laughs) women have not exactly had much of a public voice or uh, political rights to speak of, even, for all that long. Like, public discourse for most of American history has been uh, dominated and established and maintained by men. And it, it, it veers into this issue of benevolent sexism mm-hmm. as well, where it's like, ladies, ladies, ladies. Mm-hmm. <sighs> We're not street harassing you. We're just complimenting you. You know that kind of, that kind of uh, line of thinking. So it comes up a lot, of course, during uh, the suffrage era, where you have someone um, like theologian Lyman Abbott writing in the Atlantic in 1903. Because yeah, there were still think pieces, <laughs> Atlantic think pieces back then. And really, the title of his essay alone sums it up: Why Women Do Not Wish. The suffrage. I feel like words are
1: left out of that, don't you? Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> but no, I did double check and that really was the title. Um but Abbott basically launches into this ex explanation that um These women, these suffragists who are getting up and speaking on podiums and and on platforms, they just don't get it. They don't get true femininity like the silent majority of women do. Um, They don't understand how important our existing social structure is. And he said that basically he's speaking for all those silent women who don't get to give speeches at podiums, all of those women who want to stay home without the vote rather than – Stepping
0: back like 600 feet and thinking, oh, wait, silent women. Why are they silent? (laughs) Perhaps (laughs) they don't have a platform. Stop
1: it. You're logicing me to death. (laughs) My my eye spasm is going at full speed.
0: But this is also something that was repeated again during the Carter-Reagan election in 1980 when this was the year that the Republican Party – Thanks to a a lot of work from old Phyllis Schlafly, who if you want to know more about her, we've got an episode (laughs) all about, all about her that listeners have, have both loved and also hated because, um, she's, she's a lot to, to handle. Um, but this was the year that the Republican party officially took the Equal Rights Amendment off its platform. Mm-hmm. Um, and you have, during a presidential debate between Jimmy Carter and Ronald Reagan, Reagan, who is really parroting Phyllis Schlafly, so in a way he's kind of schlafly explaining, <laughs> which is hard to say. <laughs> um, but you have this very uh, benevolent sexist response of why, you know, women don't need the ERA, according to Reagan, because – Quote, it would be used by mischievous men to destroy discriminations that properly belong to women, respecting the physical differences between the two sexes and labor laws that protect them against things that would be physically harmful to them. So basically saying, like, we know what's best and we know what you don't want to do. So we don't need this legislation. And, of course, there were women out there who were all about Schlafly, who were Mm -hmm. all about the idea that the ERA would be um, harmful, even though all of their arguments for not passing the ERA have now just come to pass via individual legislation, like women um, being allowed to, like the government being allowed to draft women. And the thing is, too, Caroline, in this Ronald Reagan argument and the mischievous men, it also reminds me of a lot of conversations around why we shouldn't allow all gender bathrooms, you know, because mischievous men are gonna get in there and do things. It, there's always this weird pivot politically when it comes to this kind of legislative mansplaining where <laughs> it's a sleight of hand of, oh hey, you know, ladies, uh, we're not trying to restrict you and tell you how to live your lives. We're just trying to protect you from men who are terrible, but don't victimize
1: yourselves. <laughs> Yeah, it's a cycle of, it's a cycle of uh, so much bull honky. It's unbelievable. And I think my brain just broke because I just said bull honky. <laughs> so old school. <laughs> well, I was, I, I, um, have so much of a desire to curse so badly. And right. so I had to say something else, but. But obviously, again, it's worth restating that not all men are condescending jerks. Not all women are helpless doormats who can't voice opposition in an argument. And this is not just an
0: issue that flows directly from male gender to female gender. You know, like this can relate to and go back and forth across – all sorts of identities.
1: Yeah. And, and so much of it goes back to, cause Kristen, you know, said a lot of this is subconscious and she's absolutely right. So much of it goes back to gender norms, socialization, communication, power dynamics, just expectations that uh, end up falling short of reality or reality falls short of our expectations. And uh, linguist Deborah Tannen, whom we've cited a number of times on the podcast before, cautions people that what we call mansplaining or the idea of men interrupting women, speaking over them, condescending to them, it's not as simple as sexism. Oh, would that it were, because then maybe it would be easier to combat and raise awareness about. Uh, she says the inequality of the treatment results not simply from the men's behavior alone, but from the differences in men's and women's styles. So we are going to dive into what that means and what those styles look like and whether they're entirely accurate or just a bunch of gender essentialism when we come back from a quick break.
0: So in this half of the podcast, we're going to be focusing a lot on rock star linguist Deborah Tannen and all of the research that she's been doing for decades now on men and women's communication styles Particularly focused on the workplace, a lot of these portmanteaus um, are usually contextualized in like workplace situations like the man interrupter or the bro-propriator who will snag your idea in the the meeting and take it as his own. Um, And I I do think that before we dive into the communication style stuff that it's worth noting that this is – this is a little bit away from – that core idea of overconfidence and hubris plus some gender getting snagged in the mix mm-hmm. equals mansplaining. But um it's so helpful to understand more about just these basic communication styles of how we even talk to each other.
1: Yeah, because, I mean, as Tannen explains it – um You know, in every community of people on the globe that linguists study to understand how they communicate, what's natural, quote-unquote, for most men speaking a given language is, in a lot of cases, different from what's, quote-unquote, natural for most women. And that's because we tend to – I mean, unless you've got a mess of siblings or you do just grow up playing with people of another sex – we tend to grow up playing like with like. Girls are in a group playing with each other and boys are in a group playing Listen, with each I had, other. I had a very intersectionally diverse group of imaginary friends. <laughs> representing <laughs> had, all identities. Unicorns, fairies, uh, I had some trolls. <laughs> Oh, oh no! no. <laughs> so, um, let's dive into, uh, Tannen's, cause again, Tannen has been researching, uh, gendered communication, particularly in the workplace, since the 70s. So, she knows what she's talking about. She knows what she's talking about. So, Basically, she says that girls tend to learn these things called conversational rituals uh, that focus on the rapport dimension of relationships. We tend to play with a single best friend or in small groups. We spend a lot of time talking um, and we learn to downplay ways in which one person in the group is better than others. We tend to emphasize ways in which we're all the same. And you can see this in how girls or, frankly, grown us women uh, police each other by calling each other bossy or, you know, men or boys can call girls bossy as well. She's a know-it-all. Yeah, but you, you learn as a girl that sounding too sure of yourself can make you unpopular with your peers. So therefore as girls we learn to talk in ways that balance our needs with those of others so we're not called bossy so that we are saving face so that we can still have a large group of friends and not sound like we're trying to be ahead or above anyone else so we can be likable. Yes, yeah, so we can be likable.
0: Whereas Tannen contends that boys' conversational rituals focus more on the status dimension. Um, And this is involved with more rough-and-tumble play of guys challenging each other. Um, Usually if you have play in larger groups in which more boys can be included, not everybody is going to be treated like an equal. (laughs) Hashtag Lord of the Flies. (laughs) Oh, piggy! And when you have like more like higher status boys, they're going to be expected. Tannen writes to emphasize rather than downplay their status. They're going they're going to boss people around probably. And this is all though when I'm like, but there's usually like the there's always the the sun. In the universe of friendships, you know what I mean. Like, mm-hmm. especially like younger groups of friends tend to orbit around. And when when we're talking about girls, in my experience at least, tend to orbit around one or two uh, central people. Yeah, which to me is very. Also like status conscious, but I guess, um, on average, boys tend to be <laughs> more combative and more interested in, uh, status climbing, whereas girls are more tend and befriend.
1: Yeah. And so Tannen says that basically. Because having a boss, not someone who's bossy, but someone who's the boss, is expected in these boys' playgroups. Um, giving orders is one way of maintaining that high status role. You want to take center stage and tell your story because that is also another way. Like being the comedian, the class clown is another way of maintaining a high status. Which that just made me think of mansplaining of like, oh, getting center stage telling your story over someone else. That's showing that you are of a higher status. Okay. And it doesn't take a lot of imagination to, to project how this might play
0: out as we grow up and leave the playground for the, Wherever, wherever it is we go,
1: <laughs> the bigger playground
0: called life.
1: <laughs> That's right. And when we check in on those, uh, high status and low status boys when they grew up to be men, um, Tannen says that they're still talking in order to cement their status on the life Ladder. What about shoots and ladders? <laughs> shoots and shoots and leaves. Um, and they're using language again to exert dominance and achieve tangible outcomes. So they're more likely to speak in ways that maintain that hierarchy. They're more likely to um, try to get in good with the boss, talk loudly around the boss to get their achievements recognized, and typically, on average, again. Um, Tannen indicates that dudes become indirect with their communication, uh, like women, whose motivation is to not sound bossy again, only when it comes to admitting fault or weakness. Otherwise, they're like, this is how it is. This is the way of things. This is my opinion. And it's the best um, until they're wrong or have a mistake. And then it becomes less direct. And meanwhile, what are women doing? Whereas men are on that life ladder using their communication to maintain a higher rung. Are with, we sliding down the chutes? <laughs> we, we are all – women are all in the ball pit hanging out in the life network, using our communication too, like you said. That sounds fun. Tend and befriend. I'm scared of heights. Get me off a ladder. I'm a little worried about the germ factor of a ball pit. Um, but I wish I had one as an adult. I feel like I could let off steam by jumping into it like Scrooge McDuck. And again, in general, Tannen says that that grown-ass women are using their interactions to be more social, uh, to be more sensitive to not knocking someone down a peg. We speak in ways that help others save face, and this is something that Tannen talks a lot about in one of the papers we read because it can get – uh it can get women into some trouble if their subordinates don't understand the criticism that they're trying to – to offer so if a female manager is like hey you know you're doing a great job i love everything that you did with that report but you know i saw some mistakes on the second half that that need fixing she's she followed people around their offices for for a long time and noticed that when women did that to men the men didn't realize because the woman was not being as direct they didn't realize that she actually legitimately needed them to fix the whole report. So they only heard the compliment. They heard the compliment and felt not betrayed. That's too strong of a word. But they felt sort of led on that their report was great. Well, women are so deceitful. Us and our makeup <laughs> and contouring <laughs> skills.
0: Um, one thing, though, I, I, I was considering while reading this Tannen piece is that uh, – It was published in the Harvard Business Review in 1995. Mm -hmm. And I would just be curious if you go into that same office today and follow people around like Tannen did. I'm sure you would find similar patterns. But I also have a hunch that some of those generalizations have changed as gender dynamics have changed.
1: Oh, I, I agree. And and yes, as gender di- dynamics have changed, yes, as more women have come into workplaces. But I also feel, you know, and, and you know, I've worked with men. <laughs> I also feel that generally that softened approach is appreciated by many people, not just women in terms of being like, Hey, I love what you're doing. Like, it's great. But here's what you need to fix. But see, the funny thing for me, um, and, and,
0: and I do think that I can have a more typically masculine style of communication. Um, I switch it to where I tend to be more direct, at least in email with women and softer in my approach with men. Why is that? Uh, Because historically, I've only had male managers. Mm -hmm. So if I um, have something that I need to say Mm -hmm. or uh, a request of some sort, it has served me better to still be direct, but um, a soft directness, you know, not like not soft in like having a, a huge word count. You know what I mean? But um just a little bit more. You use Comic Sans, I know. <laughs> yeah, I use pink, a lot of emojis. Pink yeah. Comic Sans. Um, yeah. I mean, honestly, it's a way to uh to manage egos.
1: Yeah. Whereas with women, I I do feel like I can be more direct. Yeah. And I mean, Tannen. Tannen says that a lot of the stuff goes back to the fact that traditionally offices have been male-dominated, which means that the overarching communication styles that are expected are more masculine and that this puts – Women at a disadvantage, especially if they are more likely to speak in that softer tone or softer method, uh, in general. And she cites studies that, that I, I feel like have been, uh, replicated more recently that women are more likely to downplay their certainty by hedging, saying things like just or whatever, um, and using tag questions. You know what I mean? <laughs> yes, I do. I do indeed. <laughs> And, and, you know, where this comes into play is that, so basically back when Tannen was writing this, this piece, um, her whole thing circles back around to, you've got to look at what the dominant communication style is at the office and who's then getting rewarded for playing into those roles and that way of speaking. And then who's going to get rewarded for it? Because if women come up with great ideas in the meeting, but they're appropriated, then who's going to be rewarded for it? Who's going to get the promotion and who's going to be punished for speaking in a way that is not the quote unquote mainstream?
0: Yeah, I mean, and ultimately what what Tannen says, the solution to all of this is not that women should – Talk like men in the workplace or that men should uh, talk like women, whatever that is. Again, this is yeah. super essentialist language that we're using. Um, but rather that there is a healthy medium in that where women tend to use more affiliative mm-hmm. language, whereas men tend to use that more assertive language and both styles can be really beneficial in certain scenarios. But if we continue to allow the masculine style to be the norm in professional settings like it has been because historically dudes were the first ones in the office. Mm -hmm. They were the first ones in business. So they are the default. If that continues, then we're never going to solve this problem. Basically, we need to listen to each other better.
1: We need to listen to each other better and recognize that it is possible that we just have different ways of speaking and hearing and that our expectations are shaped by socialization. And, you know, Tannen does a lot of talking about these um um Ritual conversational behaviors, things like apologizing that we've talked about so much before. Things like uh, mitigating criticism with praise, which is a traditionally female uh, way of speaking or offering criticism. Um, she also points out that exchanging compliments is a ritual behavior of women. And you're probably being like, what in the world do compliments have to do with mansplaining? I myself wondered this as well. Come along for the ride, fair listeners. Basically, and I'm going to try to boil this down as quickly as possible, but she gives the example of a of a set of coworkers that she studied. And uh, we'll call them Cheryl and Bob. And so after a presentation that Bob gave and Cheryl gave one to, Cheryl's like, hey, Bob, you did a great job. And he's like, thanks. And he doesn't offer any compliment in return. And because she feels like this ritual, so to speak, has been upturned, she's like, well, wh- what did you think of mine? And because of his – and again, gender essentialist – talking in general terms here. But because of his socialization, he sees this question as evidence of uncertainty. Uh That means that Cheryl is now down a peg on the life ladder. And so he then holds forth with a critique. So all of a sudden, Cheryl feels that she's down a peg on the ladder and doesn't know why, because she's just trying to exchange compliments, because that is her Conversational ritual that she's used to. It's the same thing as like, Hey girl, I love your dress. Or like, Hey, you did great on that thing today. It's the same thing. Of course, I know Kristen's rolling her eyes. But no, I'm just, I'm rolling my eyes at fishing expeditions. Well, yes, yes, yes. Um, but to me, that was an interesting look at a potential opening for mansplaining. If you are doing those ritual compliments, if you are fishing, and someone sees it as an opportunity to explain to you all the ways in which your whatever presentation piece of writing piece of art uh, is not as good as it could have been or should have been. But how is that just different from a critique
0: or constructive criticism? I don't see. That's where that's where the
1: argument loses me that that
0: has anything to do with gender.
1: Well, Tannen would argue that men are less likely to ask for feedback from a colleague after a presentation like sure. this. Sure. I'm just saying like a- as
0: – that a-, a man offering critique um, isn't inherently splaining. You yeah. know what I mean? Like to me, that's just Cheryl's failed fishing expedition. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. And so Cheryl needs to maybe have – practice a little more – self-awareness of that too. Yeah. Of like, okay, you you want, you didn't hear what you wanted to hear. Mm-hmm. So then, let's, let's step back a second and ask, well, why is that? And what would, what did you want to hear? And then go from there.
1: Yeah. And, I think it's incredibly valid to argue that again, not every time a man opens his mouth in response to what a woman says, is it mansplaining? do, Certain communication rituals open the door to some of these abuses of communication. Yes. That doesn't mean that every instance of that communication is mansplaining. And plenty of people on the Internet, women included, uh, are no fans of the term mansplaining. Not the practice, but the term. Yeah,
0: I agree that mansplaining in similar to the word empowerment, um, has lost some of its meaning due to overuse. Um, and it can be a really lazy knee jerk way to just tell a guy to shut up. Mm-hmm. Um, and it can have a negative chilling effect. Um, because in conversations, for instance, around reproductive rights, um, do I think that cisgender men should Perhaps tread lightly and really, really listen hard before they talk. Um, yeah, I do. But I, I, I don't think that men expressing their opinions or forming opinions on reproductive rights is necessarily mansplaining.
1: Right. You know what I mean? Well, I mean, that goes back to the example you cited earlier from your own experience of the man kind of mansplaining feminism to you. It would have been a totally different ball of wax if you guys were batting the subject back and forth and having a conversation about it.
0: Right. And particularly if you are someone who does not possess whatever identity is kind of at stake in the conversation. Um Also important to Consider your privilege and consider the platform that you have that is different from people, um, the people that you are talking about. So in the case of our podcast, for instance, uh, when we are talking about the experiences of women of color, we can quickly get into that if we are not careful about acknowledging the fact that we are speaking as to white women. Well,
1: yeah. And so and this is when you see women of color on Twitter saying, can you please just sit down? Yeah. Just sit down and listen. And and that's what's going on, that they are tired of being whitesplained just the way that, you know, women at large are exhausted with being mansplained. Right. And so because of that,
0: I I'm totally cool with the term. You know, when <laughs> when I see examples like uh, old Alex on. <laughs> Facebook, hashtag not all Alex's. Um, that's mansplaining and I'll call it out and it's a very useful term when you are identifying the right thing. Yes. Um, but in the same way, uh, that I, I think that, um, super crass comedy is just lazy, like just automatically going blue to me is, is boring. Mm-hmm. Um, using mansplaining as your knee jerk way to just tell a guy that you just don't want to hear what he has to say, um, I think is, is, Misguided and, and useless. But the discomfort that the word can, uh, can spark, I think is like, is, is really, really beneficial. But it's also that discomfort, ironically, which is what, um, some people take issue with. Where, uh, for instance, Leslie Kinzel, whom we've cited before on the podcast, um, she's written a lot of great stuff and over at XO Jane in 2012, she wrote a piece uh, saying, like, I, I hate the word mansplaining, um, because she felt that it was gender essentialist, which valid argument, but she also seemed concerned that it would make men uncomfortable. And I, I, I'm, I doubt that that's really, like, what she meant, but that is what I took away from it of, like, you know, like, we're all always using, and this is not, Herb that I'm trying to parrot right now. I'm just saying like there is a general tone sometimes of, you know, there's so much criticism that goes on and so much name calling, you know, let's take the higher ground and not call men mansplainers. And it's like, no, no, no. The discomfort is the point of it in the same way that solidarity is for white women, you know, as a white feminist, uh, that is, of course, uncomfortable to hear. And you want to think. Oh, no. Am I doing that? Am I part of the problem? That's awful. And, of course, not all white women, you know, but it's so important. And that was such and still is a useful, automatic way to call out and identify
1: these institutional issues. Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a valid point. And I, I, sh- I am not advocating that we would ever think that men are too stupid to understand sexism or sexist behavior. That's, that's ridiculous and that is sexist. Um, but I think that it is worth acknowledging that whether the, the splaining you are doing is the man variety or the white variety or whatever, there is a degree of implicit bias to be wrangled with. And that's the utility of
0: these kinds of words, of being able to immediately spotlight things that are otherwise invisible.
1: Yeah. And, and can I – can I speaking of spotlight, can I spotlight one other argument that I thought was kind of silly? Of course. Coming from Kinzel, but also coming from Liz Cookman over at The Guardian, Um, they kind of both argue – I think uh, Cookman more explicitly, but they both kind of argue that, like, you can't or you shouldn't or please don't use mansplaining anymore, the term mansplaining, because how would you feel – if someone accused us of woman splaining, yeah. and my comeback to that is just a blank stare and and blinking helplessly because I, that's not the that's not the point. And also, like you can just tell me if I'm being condescending, and and maybe the cure to that is just awareness. Yeah. Yeah, because what it's getting to is a product of patriarchy. Exactly. And I mean, that goes back to the point about implicit bias and that if you are splaining from a position of higher privilege, it's different. Um, Right. I mean, wouldn't you say? Oh, absolutely. And now is where we should invite our listeners to
0: share all of their thoughts on this, especially because we are too... Cis, straight, white, able bodied women who have been sitting here talking ab- about it, um, and also how it affects different identities. I am really looking forward to hearing from our listeners about this issue and also from guys in the audience of how you grapple with it and, um, and, and how, how you process the concept too um because again like it's it's overuse and abuse sometimes does threaten like its usefulness mm-hmm. um but you know ultimately it is still useful it can be useful so y'all now that we've explained quite a bit We want to hear from you. MomStuff at HowStuffWorks.com is our email address. You can also tweet us at Podcast or message us on Facebook. And we've got a couple of messages to share with you when we come right back from a quick break. So I have a letter here from Marina in response to our episode on gender invention and patents. And... In it, we had asked about why there's so much more gender parity in terms of uh, patent holding in former communist countries. So Marina writes, Loved the episode. It hit on every subject near and dear to my heart because I am a patent lady lawyer with my area of expertise in electronics and electrical engineering. As it happens, I'm also from the former Soviet Union. The first reason is that every country has their own brand of sexism and gender roles. Russia has its fair share of problems with sexism, but women in STEM fields was never seen as unladylike or outside of the gender roles for women. I know many Russian women who were scientists and engineers back in Russia, and talking to them, I was surprised to find stories of a whole department of chemists who were all women or a whole department of electrical engineers. I asked why, and the only response I got was that they thought there were great jobs for women without any specifics. In the U.S., we don't usually say, a chemist, that's a great job for a woman. We usually talk about part-time retail jobs like that because you can be with the kids during the day. The second reason is that the Communist Party was the workers party therefore everyone was expected to be a hard worker plus russia needed every available worker to industrialize after the communist revolution every woman in my family going back to my great grandmother worked outside of the home in the u.s i barely know of anyone with a grandmother that was not a stay-at-home mom unless they were in some terrible situation where they had to work the last reason was world war ii While in the US, women had to step up and work manufacturing jobs while their husbands fought overseas and were forced to return home after the war, Russia lost such a huge percentage of the male population in the war, they needed women to work. Since women have had parity in the workplace for years, parity in STEM fields and universities, they occupy pretty equal parts in the R&D departments as inventors who file for patents.
1: Thank you so much for that insight, Marina. And I have a letter here from Inez. She says, this morning on my way to work, I listened to your podcast about women inventors and patents. One bit stood out. The fact that the percentage of patents filed by women in former communist countries is higher than in other parts of the world. I'm originally from the former GDR, German Democratic Republic, although I have lived abroad for the last 14 years. And this actually makes a lot of sense to me. When I was little, it was completely normal for women to work, and that also in very technical fields, like the mom of a friend who was a construction engineer. In schools, the science and science-related subjects were the very highly valued, and the girls can't do math sentiment didn't really exist. Just look at one of the most famous former GDR citizens. Angela Merkel has a PhD in physical chemistry. I did not know that. I didn't (laughs) either. Thank you, Inez. Um, she continues. It's also not a coincidence that it was Russia who had a woman in space in 1963 while NASA was still calculating tampon problems in the 1980s. There was also other stuff, such as abortion rights, where nothing that had to be discussed. Abortion was simply available and was then quite restricted after the fall of the wall. Child care was also available and affordable. Also very interesting, the pay gap between the genders is significantly smaller in the German states that used to make up the GDR compared to the rest of the country. This doesn't make communism a feminist paradise at all. Most of the time, these things existed because the countries needed women in the workforce, especially after the war and in the GDR, because so many people were fleeing the country. It wasn't about the equality of women. For example, the political elite was mainly male. There were exceptions, of course, like Margot Honecker. Also, religion wasn't super popular with the political leaders, so the church didn't get to influence people's lives as much as in other parts of the world. Anyway, I was born in 1984, so I can only retell stories I was told by my family. But maybe a podcast about feminism in these countries could be super interesting. It certainly would have looked quite different than what you guys are used to. Well, thank you so much for the perspective, Inez. And thanks to everybody who's written into to us. MomStuff at HowStuffWorks.com
0: is our email address. And for links to all of our social media, as well as all of our blogs, videos, and podcasts with our sources, so you can learn more about mansplaining, head on over to StuffMomNeverToldYou.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.